Chapter 17 of Football Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine Blashford. Football Days by William Edwards. Chapter 17. Our Good Old Trainers. Part B. Keen Fitzpatrick. When Biffy Lear was coaching at the University of Michigan in 1901, it was my opportunity and privilege to see something of Western football. I was at Ann Arbor assisting Lee the last week before Michigan played Chicago. Michigan was defeated. That night at a banquet given to the Michigan team, there arose a man to respond to a toast. His words were cheering to the men and roused them out of the gloom of despair and defeat to a strong hope for the coming year. That man was Keen Fitzpatrick. I had heard much about him, but now that I really had come to meet him, I realized what a magnetic man he was. He knew men and how to get the best out of them. Fitzpatrick went from Michigan to Yale, from Yale back to Michigan, and then to Princeton, where Princeton men hope he will always stay. Michigan admirers were loath to lose Fitzpatrick, and their tribute to him on leaving was as follows. The University of Michigan combination was broken yesterday when Keen Fitzpatrick announced that he had accepted Princeton's offer to take effect in the fall of 1910. He was trainer for Michigan for 15 years. For five years, Fitz has been sought by every large university in the East. What was Michigan's loss was Princeton's gain. He made men better, not alone physically, but morally. His work has been uplifting along all lines of university activities. In character and example, he is as great and untiring as in his teaching and precept. The final and definite knowledge of his determination to leave Michigan is a severe blow to the students, all of whom know and appreciate his work. Next to President Angle, no man of the University of Michigan in the last ten years has exerted a more wholesome influence upon the students than has Keen Fitzpatrick. His work brought him in close touch with the students, and his influence over them for good has been wonderful. He is a man of ideals and clean life. To Fitz, as the boys called him, as much as to the great coach Yost is due Michigan's fine record in football, his place will be hard to fill. Fitz has aided morally in placing athletics on a high plane and in cultivating a fine spirit of sportsmanship. He was elected an honorary member of the class of 1913 at Princeton. The secretary of the class wrote him a letter in which he said, The senior class deeply appreciates your successful efforts and in behalf of the university takes this opportunity of expressing its indebtedness to you for the valuable results which you have accomplished. Yost had a high opinion of Fitzpatrick. Fitz and I worked together for nine years, writes Yost. We were like brothers during that association at Michigan. There is no one person who contributed so much to the University of Michigan as this great trainer. His wonderful personality, his expert assistance and that great optimism of his stood out as his leading qualifications. My association with him is one of the pleasantest recollections of my life. He put the men in shape, trained them and developed them. They were usable all the time. He is a trainer who has his men in the finest mental condition possible. I don't think there was ever a trainer who kept men more fit physically and mentally than Keen Fitzpatrick. There were in Michigan two players, brothers, who were far apart in skill. Keane says one was of varsity caliber, but wanted his brother, too, to make the eleven. Once, says Keane, when we were going on a trip, John, who was a better player, said, I will not go if Joe cannot go. So, in order to get John, we had to take Joe. Fitzpatrick tells of an odd experience in football. In 1901, Michigan went out to Southern California and played Leland Stanford University at Pasadena January the 1st. When the Michigan team left Ann Arbor for California in December, it was 12 degrees below zero, and when they played on New Year's, it was 80 degrees at 3 p.m. 
Stanford was supposed to have a big advantage due to the climate. Michigan won by a score of 49-0. to zero. Michigan used but 11 men in the game, and it was their first scrimmage since Thanksgiving Day. A funny thing happened en route to Pasadena. Every time the train stopped, said Keane, we hustled the men out to give them practice, running through signals and passing the ball. Everything went well until we arrived in Ogden, Utah. We hustled the men out as usual for a workout, and in less than two minutes the men were all in, lying down on the ground gasping for breath. We could not understand what was wrong until someone came along and reminded us that we were in a very high altitude and that it affected people who were not accustomed to it. We all felt better when we received that information. Michael J. Sweeney there are few trainers in our prep schools who can match the record of Mike Sweeney. He has been an important part of the Hill School's athletics for years. Many of the traditions of this school are grouped, in fact, about his personality. Hill School boys are loud in their praises of Sweeney's achievements. He always had a strong hold on the students there. He has given many a boy words of encouragement that have helped him on in the school, and this same boy has come back to him in afterlife to get words of advice. Many colleges tried to sever his connection with Hill School. I know that at one time Princeton was very anxious to get Sweeney's services. He was happy at Hill School, however, and decided to stay. It was there at Hill School that Sweeney turned out some star athletes. Perhaps one of the most prominent was Tom Shevlin. Sweeney saw great possibilities in Shevlin. He taught him the fundamentals that made Shevlin one of the greatest ends that ever played at Yale. He typified Sweeney's ideal football player. Shevlin never lost an opportunity to express appreciation of what Sweeney had done for him. Tom gave all credit for his athletic ability to Mike Sweeney of Hill and Mike Murphy of Yale. His last desire for Yale athletics was to bring Sweeney to Yale and have him installed not as a direct coach or trainer of any team, but more as a general athletic director connected with the faculty to advise and help in all branches of college sport. Tom Shevlin idolised Sweeney. Those who were at the banquet of the 1905 team at Cambridge will recall the tribute that Shevlin then paid to him. He declared that he regarded Sweeney as the world's greatest brain on all forms of athletics. Whenever Mike Sweeney puts his heart into his work, he is one of the most completely absorbed men I know. Sweeney possesses an uncanny insight into the workings of the games and individuals. Oftentimes, as he sits on the sidelines, he can foretell an accident coming to a player. Mike was sitting on the Yale sidelines one day and remarked to Ed Wiley, a former Hill School player, a Yale substitute at that time, they ought to take Smith out of the game. He shows signs of weakening. You'd better go tell the trainer to do it. But before Wiley could get to the trainer, several plays had been run off, and the man who had played too long received an injury and was done for. Sweeney's predictions generally ring true. It is rather remarkable and especially fortunate that a prep school should have such an efficient athletic director. For 13 years, Sweeney acted in that capacity and coached all the teams. He taught other men to teach football. Jack Moakley had anyone gone to Ithaca in the hope of obtaining the services of Jack Moakley, the Cornell trainer, he would have found this popular trainer's friends rising up and showing him the way to the station, because there never has been a human being who could sever the relations between Jack Moakley and Cornell. The record he has made with his track teams alone entitles him to a high place, if not the highest place, on the trainer's roll of honour. To tell of his achievements would fill an entire chapter, but as we are confining ourselves to football, his work in this department of Cornell sports stands on a par with any football trainer. Jack Moakley takes his work very seriously, and no man works any harder on the Cornell squad than does their trainer. Costello, a Cornell captain of years ago, relates the following incident. 
Jack Moakley had a man on his squad who had a great habit of digging up unusual fads, generally in the matter of diet. At this particular time, he had decided to live solely on grape nuts. As he was one of the best men on the team, Jack did not burden himself with trouble over this fad, although at several times Moakley told him that he might improve if he would eat some real food. However, when this man started a grape nut campaign among the younger members of the squad, he aroused Jack's ire, and upon his arrival at the field house, he wiped the blackboard clean of all instructions, and in letters a foot high wrote, They who eat beef are beefy, they who eat nuts are nutty. The resultant kidding finally made the old beefsteak popular with our friend. Johnny Mac it would not seem natural if one failed to see Johnny Mack on the sidelines where Yale is playing. In 11 years at New Haven, Yale teams were never criticized on account of their condition. The physical condition of the Yale team has always been left entirely in Johnny Mack's hands, and the hard contests that they went through in the season of 1915 were enough to worry any trainer. Johnny Mack was always optimistic. There is much humor in Johnny Mac. It is amusing to hear Johnny tell of the experience that he and Pooch Donovan had in a Paris restaurant, and I'm sure you can all imagine the rest. Johnny said they got along pretty well with their French until they ordered potatoes and the waiters brought in a peck of peas. It is a difficult task for a trainer to tell whether a player is fully conscious of all that is going on in a game. Sometimes a hard tackle or a blow on the head will upset a man. Johnny Mac tells a story that illustrates this fact. There was a quarterback working in the game one day. I thought he was going wrong. I said to the coach, I think something has happened to our quarterback. He told me to go out and look him over. I went out and called the captain to one side after I had permission from the referee. I asked him if he thought the quarterback was going right. He replied that he thought he was, but called out some signals to him to see if he knew them. The quarter answered the captain's questions after a fashion, and the captain was satisfied. But just the same, he didn't look good to me. I asked the captain to let me give him a signal, one we never used, and one the captain did not even know. Said I, what's this one? 48, 16, 32, 12. That's me through the right end, he said. Not on your life, old man, said I. That's you and me to the sidelines. I remember one fall, says Johnny, when we were very shy on big material at Yale. The coaches told me to take a walk about the campus and hunt up some big fellows who might possibly come out for football. While going along the commons at noon, the first fellow I met was a big, fine-looking man, a 210-pounder at least, with big, broad shoulders. I stopped him and asked if he had ever played football. Yes, he said, I played a little at school. I'll come out next week. I told him not to bother about next week, but to come out that afternoon, that I'd meet him at the gym at one o'clock and have some clothes for him. He came at one o'clock and I told one of the rubbers to have some clothes ready. When I came back at one thirty and looked around, I couldn't recognize him. Where in the world is my big fellow? I said to Jim the rubber. Your big fellow? Why, he just passed you, said Jim. No, said I, that can't be the man. That must be some consumptive. Just the same, that's your big fellow in his football suit, said Jim. The biggest part of him is hanging up in there on a nail. Some tailors these fellows have nowadays. Johnny Mac further tells of an amusing incident in Foster Sanford's coaching. At early practice in New Haven, Sanford was working the linemen, says Johnny. He picked a green, husky-looking boy out of the line of candidates and was soon playing against him. He didn't know who Sandy was, and believe me, Sandy was handling him pretty rough to see what he was made of. The first thing you know, the fellow was talking to himself, and when Sandy was careless, suddenly shot over a stiff one on Sandy's face and yelled, I'm going to have you know that no man's going to push me around this field. Sandy was happy as could be. He patted the chap on the back and roared, Good stuff. You're all right. You're the kind of man I want. We can use men like you. But Foster Sanford was not the only old-timer who could take the young one's hard knocks, says Johnny. I've seen Heffelfinger come back to Yale Field after being out of college 20 years and play with the scrubs for 55 minutes without a layoff. I never saw a man with such endurance. 
Ted Coy was a big, good-natured fellow. He was never known to take time out in a game in the four years he played football. In his senior year, he didn't play until the West Point game. While West Point was putting it all over us, Coy was on the sidelines, frantically running up and down. But we had strict instructions from the doctor not to play him, no matter what happened. Suddenly, Coy said, "'Johnny, let me in. I'm not going to have my team licked by this crowd.' And in he jumped." I saw him call Philbin up alongside of him, and the first thing I knew I saw Philbin and Coy running up the field like a couple of deer. In just three plays they took the ball from our own five-yard line to a touchdown. After that there was a different spirit in the team. Coy was an inspiration to his players. One more story, says Johnny. There were two boys at New Haven. Their first names were Jack, and both were substitutes on the scrub. About the middle of the second half in the Harvard game, the coach told me to go and warm up Jack. One of the Jacks jumped up, while the other Jack sank back on the bench with surprise and sorrow on his face. Seeing that a mistake had been made, I said, "'Not you, but you, Jack,' and pointed to the other one. As the right Jack jumped up, the cloudy face turned to sunshine, as only a football player can imagine, and the sunny smile of the first Jack turned to deepest gloom, an affecting sight I shall never forget. Huggins of Brown I know of no college trainer who seems to get more pleasure out of his work than Huggins of Brown. There are numerous incidents that are recorded in this book that have been the experiences of this good-natured trainer.' A trainer's life is not always a merry one. Many things occur that tend to worry him, but he gets a lot of fun out of it just the same. Huggins says, Some years ago, Brown had a big lineman on its team who had never been to New York, where we went that year to meet Carlisle. The players put in quite a bit of time jollying him and having all sorts of fun at his expense. We stopped at one of the big hotels, and the rooms were on the seventh and eighth floors. In the rooms were the rope fire escapes, common in those days, knotted every foot or so. The big lineman asked what it was for, and the other fellows told him, but added that this room was the only one so equipped, and that he must look sharp that none of the others helped themselves to it for their protection against fire. That night, as usual, I was making my rounds after the fellows had gone to bed. Coming into this player's room, I saw that he was asleep, but that there appeared to be some strange, unusual lump in the bed. I immediately woke him to find out what it was. Much to my amusement, I discovered that he had wound about fifteen feet of the rope around his body, and I had an awful job trying to assure him that the boys had been fooling him. Nothing that I could say, however, would convince him, and I left him to resume his slumbers with the rope still wrapped tightly around his body. Huggins not only believes that Brown University is a good place to train, but he thinks it is a good place to send his boy. He has a son who is a freshman at Brown, as I write. Huggins went to Brown in the fall of 1896 as a trainer. Here is another good Huggins story. Sprackling, our all-American quarterback of a few years ago, always had his nerve with him and, however tight the place, generally managed to get out with a whole skin. But I recall one occasion when the wind was taken out of his sails, he was at a loss what to say or how to act. We were talking over prospects on the steps in front of the Brown Union one morning, just before college opened, the fall that he was captain, when a young chap came up and said, "'Are you Sprackling, captain of the team?' "'That's me,' replied Sprack." "'Well, I'm coming out for quarterback,' the young man declared, "'and I expect to make it. "'I can run the 100 in 10-1 and the 220 in evens, "'and I'm a good quarterback. "'I'm going to beat you out of your job.' Sprack, for once in his life, was flustered to death. "'When several of the boys who were nearby "'and had heard the conversation began to laugh, "'he grew red in the face and quickly got up "'and walked away without a word. "'But before I could recover myself, "'the promising candidate had disappeared.' Harry Tuthill, specialist in knees and ankles, was the first trainer West Point ever had. When he turned up at the academy, he was none too sure that a football was made of leather and blown up. He got his job at the point through the bandaging of Ty Cobb's ankle. An army coach saw him do it and said, "'Harry, if you can do that the way you do it, come to West Point and do it for us.' Tuthill was none too welcome to the authorities other than the football men. In the eyes of the superintendent, every cadet was fit to do anything that might be required of him. "'You've got to make good with the soup,' said the coaches.' 
So Harry went out and watched the dress parade and the ensuing double-time review. After the battalion was dismissed, Tuthill was introduced to the superintendent. "'Well, Mr. Tuthill,' said the superintendent, "'I'm glad to meet you, but I really do not see what we need of a trainer.' Harry shifted his feet and, gathering courage, blurted out, "'Run those boys around again and then ask them to whistle.' There are many other trainers who deserve mention in this chapter, men who are earnestly and loyally giving up their lives to the training of the young men in our different colleges, but space will not permit to take up any more of these interesting characters. Their tribute must be a silent one, not only from myself, but from the undergraduates and graduates of the colleges to which they belong, and upon whose shoulders are heaped year after year honours which are due them. First doctor in charge of any team. Dr. W. M. Conant, Harvard, 79, says... I believe I was the first doctor associated with the Harvard team, and so far as I know, the first doctor who was in charge of any team at any college. At Harvard, this custom has been kept up. I was requested by Arthur Cumnock, who had been beaten the previous year by Yale, to come out and help him win a game. This I consented to do, provided I had absolute control of the medical end of the team, which consisted not only of taking care of the men who were injured, but also of their diet. This has since been taken up by the trainer." The late George Stewart and the late George Adams were the coaches in charge that year, and my recollections of some of the difficulties that arose because of new methods are very enjoyable, even at this late day. So far as I know, this was the first season men were played in the same position opposite one another. In other words, there was an attempt to form a second eleven, which is now a well-recognized condition. I had a house built under the grandstand where every man from our team was stripped, rubbed dry, and put into a new suit of clothes, also given a certain amount of hot drink as seemed necessary. This was a thing which had never been done before, and in my opinion had a large influence in deciding the game in Harvard's favour, as the men went out upon the field in the second half almost as fresh as when they started the first half. I remember that I had not seen a victory over Yale since I was graduated from college in 1879. Some of the suggestions that I made about the time men should be played were laughed at. The standpoint I took was that a man should not be allowed by the coach to play until he was deemed fit. The physician in charge was also a matter of serious discussion. Many of these points are now so well established that to the present generation it is hardly possible to make them realise that from 1890 to 1895 it was necessary to make a fight to establish certain well-known methods. What would the present football man think of being played for one and one-half hours, whether he was in shape or not? The present football man does not appreciate what some of the older college graduates went through in order to bring about the present reasonable methods adopted in handling the game. End of chapter 17